Turn, if you would, this morning to the book of Exodus. To the book of Exodus. I'll be a little more specific in just a moment, but if you'll find your way to Exodus, then that will give you a good head start for where we're going to be in a little bit. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are glad to be in your house today. I trust that would be said of each person who is here. Lord, I pray that you would use this time together to help us, to remind us of a very simple truth. Lord, one that we tend to lose sight of from time to time. I pray that you'd help it to again be reestablished in our hearts and minds and that we would live according to it. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we continued our study in this series entitled, Who is God? And in doing so, we looked at the story of David and his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. You may remember that that led then in an effort to cover up his sin to the act of murdering her husband, that being Uriah the Hittite. And as a result of this sin in David's life, it robbed him of his joy and his gladness. And so there came a point where he cried unto the Lord and he asked the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation unto him. And we watched as God did exactly as David asked him to do. God restored the relationship. We then turned to the book of John and watched as Peter failed the Lord. And as a result of Peter's failing the Lord, he went out and he wept bitterly after he denied Christ three times. And we watched as Christ, after the resurrection, went to Peter and once again restored that relationship with him. And so I tried to remind us last week that of all the things that God is, God is a restorer of broken relationships. When you and I have allowed sin to enter into our lives, when you and I have allowed sin to take hold and it has robbed us of our joy and of our gladness, if we will cry out to God, God will always be willing to forgive and God is always willing to restore that relationship. So many times our hang-up comes in forgiving ourselves. We can't forget what we've done. We can't forget our failures. And so we have a hard time forgiving ourselves and believing that God has forgiven us. But we need to remember that God is faithful to forgive and he is faithful to restore. And that is a wonderful aspect of God that we need to be reminded of. Amen. Anyways, this morning we're going to continue on in this study. We're going to look at another attribute of who Christ is, of who God is. We'll look at the Old Testament. We'll look at the New Testament to try to get some confirmation on what I'll be preaching. But this morning I want us to think about a situation that is hypothetical. I want you to know that I don't have any one particular situation in mind. I don't have any two people in in mind whenever I say, say what I'm about to say. It's just a hypothetical situation that we have seen play out maybe once, maybe twice, maybe more times than this, but... But I want us to think, first of all, of a man and a woman who meet each other, and as we might say it this way, there is a chemistry there, or there was some kind of a physical attraction. They could not deny they were interested in one another. Now, we've all been there. We've all experienced that at least once in our lives. Now, that's how we got married, if we're married, okay? So, so you identify with that. You understand that to an extent. And, and so as this person, this man, is interested in this woman and vice versa, They begin to spend more time with each other, and and pretty soon it is apparent, it is obvious that they cannot live without each other. They have to spend the rest of their lives together in marriage in order to be happy. 
So as the plans develop and as the plans evolve, a wedding date is scheduled and the wedding finally arrives. And whenever this happens, we know this to be a big day in the life of the bride and the groom, do we not? So there are many things that are going to transpire on this day. There are many things that are going to happen. But above everything that will happen, above every, or of, of all the things that will happen, and of all the things that will transpire, one of the most important aspects of that day will be this, whenever the bride and the groom exchange their vows to one another. Whenever they promise to love and to cherish till death do us part. Whenever they promise to honor and, and, and all of the different things that are said in the vows, that is among the most important things, uh, the most important things that will take place in that couple's life on that day. Now, I know I've talked about this before, and, and, and this may seem somewhat repetitive, but here's what we know, that whenever a couple gets married, it's, it's usually an exciting time and a happy time for that couple. Would you agree? If you can think back to the day you got married, I would hope and I would trust that you were excited that day and you were looking forward to the rest of your life because in your mind it was going to be nothing but bliss, it was going to be nothing but wonder, it would be nothing but excitement, it was going to be happily ever after for you. And yet here is what we have seen in probably almost every marriage, that after a little bit of time some of the bliss begins to wear off just a little bit. Maybe it begins to wear off quite a bit. And so as the bliss begins to fade and as the excitement begins to subside and, and, and as normal life gets back into the routine of things and, and, and people get back to their lives as they were, and now they're married, but, you know, life has to resume as it once was, here's what happens. There can be struggles in the marriage, can there not? Sometimes as life gets busy and life gets hectic and life gets crazy, it can produce certain struggles and stresses in a relationship. And if not handled correctly, here's what it will cause either the husband or the wife to do. To maybe look for that same kind of excitement, that same kind of feeling in someone else that they once enjoyed in the person they're now married to. It starts out relatively innocent. Certainly not this way in every situation, but it would look something like this. Maybe just lingering a little too long in this other person's presence because they are enjoying the attention that this person is now giving them that they feel their spouse no longer gives them. You know what that's like, right, if you've seen this play out? Their spouse is no longer laughing at all their jokes. The spouse is no longer telling them how great and wonderful they are. And, and now there's this other person giving to them what their spouse used to give them. And so there's an attraction now with this person outside of their marriage. And, and, and as there's this attraction and these lingering conversations, it, it might turn into an accidental bumping into each other in the lunchroom or whatever it may be, and just sitting there having a talk and a meal together. But everything's innocent, everything's fine, everything's okay. And then it might result or progress into something like this. You know, the text messages going back and forth. And, and there's nothing over the top wrong about the text messages in and of themselves. But, but the question would have to be asked, well, why are you texting this person? Why does this need to happen? Why does this need to take place? 
And as one spouse begins to drift from the other, regardless of what the issues may be, I can promise you this, that the non-drifting spouse is not okay with the one who is drifting. You following this? So as the one who is not drifting begins to see the other one drift, let's, let's listen now. As the one who is drifting is doing so, the one who is not is going to struggle with many different thoughts and feelings and emotions. There might be anger. There might be resentment. There might be some bitterness. There might be many different things that are experienced on the part of the one who is not drifting. And you know where all that is rooted in? You know what all of that is, is based in? You know why the one who is not drifting is struggling with their attitude and their thoughts and their emotions and their feelings? You know why that is? It's because of an inbred natural thing called jealousy. You understand this? There's a jealousy there. You promised to love me. You promised to honor me. You promised to stay faithful to me. You, you promised these things. And now you're not doing what you promised. And it's creating all these different emotions and feelings within me based upon a jealousy that I have for our relationship. Now, in a situation like that, I think any honest, rational person would say this, for the one who is struggling with a jealousy for their marriage, there is nothing wrong with such a jealousy. In fact, it would be inappropriate if the one didn't care if their spouse was drifting. You understand this, don't you? If the spouse could watch their partner drift into another relationship with another person and it not disturb them and create in them these feelings of anger and, and, and bitterness, whatever it may be, because there was no jealousy for the relationship, well, then we would say this, you've got issues yourself, sir or ma'am. Because if things were what they were supposed to be, you could not help but be jealous. Now this morning, I suspect that there will not be much suspense, much intrigue uh, by way of, of the message and where it's headed and, and, and mystery, but, but I think we need to be reminded of this part of who God is. So this morning in Exodus chapter 19, it's where we're going to begin. In Exodus chapter 19, here is what many of us are familiar with. I know I have brought this to our attention in times past. But in Exodus chapter 19, we have the recent removal of the children of Israel out of their bondage from the land of Egypt. For over 400 years, the children of Israel served as slaves to the nation of Egypt, to the Egyptian people. And as a result of their crying out, as a result of their tears, as a, as a result of their misery, and calling out to God, God delivered them, and He did so in a miraculous fashion, did He not? With the plagues that he brought about the land of Egypt to, to the plagues of, of the water turning to blood and the lice and the frogs and, and the, the, the darkness and everything that God did, it was a miraculous show of God's power that brought about the deliverance of God's people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt. So as that happens, here's what we know by the time we get to Exodus chapter 19 that the children of Israel are excited. They're thrilled. They are loving what God has done on their behalf, and rightfully so. 
So here they are, and they're in this new stage of life. They're in this new area of life that none of them have ever known before because every Israelite that was brought out of Egypt, they had only known slavery all their lives. This is the first time they've known liberty. This is the first time they've known freedom. This is the first time they've known the ability to make decisions for themselves. And as all this is happening in Exodus chapter 19, here's what you've got. You've got God declaring his desire and his intentions to govern or to rule in the lives of the people of Israel. And what you discover in chapter 19 is this, is that the children of Israel are more than willing to yield themselves to God's governing or to God's authority in their lives. So whenever they learn God wants to be controller, God wants to be the governor, God wants to be the authority in your life, the children of Israel, they're completely fine with it, they're completely okay with it, they're excited about it. Yet what would God have known? Well, God would have known this. It's not always going to be this exciting in the relationship. God knew because God knows the hearts of man. God knew that for the children of Israel, it would not always be as thrilling as it was on this day. It's not always going to be as exciting as it is on this day. And so what God is going to do is he puts these things in place. As he begins to give them the law, here's what he's going to do. He's going to say, I want these things from you and I expect these things of, of, I expect these things of you. And he's even going to tell them why he wants and expects these things. So what does God say? Well, notice in chapter 20, it says in verse number 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So what does God remind them of there in verse number 2? He reminds them of this, that he is the one who is responsible for their deliverance and their salvation. They had nothing to do with this. If they could have freed themselves, they would have freed themselves years and years and years ago. If they could have done this in their own strength and in their own power, they would not have been slaves for over 400 years. So God reminds them in verse number 2 that it was him who was responsible for their deliverance and being brought out of the house of bondage. So in verse number 3, he said this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Since I delivered you, since I'm the one who has freed you from this bondage, I want you to understand that right out of the box, first and foremost, here's what I want you to know, one of my governing laws to be in your life Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does that mean? It means this. I want to be first in your life. It would be like a wife saying to her husband, I want to be first in your life. It would be like the husband saying to his wife, I want to be first in your life. I don't want to be second. I don't want to be third. I don't want to be behind your parents. I don't want to be behind the kids. I don't want to be behind your best friend. I want to be the first in your life. Above everyone else, above all things in your life, I want to be in front of them. That is what God said. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I want to be, and I expect to be, number one. Was that a fair law to impose? Of course it was. 
If somebody gives you freedom, if somebody gives you liberty, if someone rescues you, it's within their boundaries of what's appropriate to say, I'd like to be first in your life. And I expect to be first in your life. He said in verse number 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. So he says, I don't want you to make any images. I don't want you to set up any idols. I don't want you to bow down to them. I don't care if it's something of the earth or something of the sea, something of the oceans. I don't want you to make any kind of an image or an idol that you would bow down to. So he said in verse number 3, No other gods before me. There are to be no images. I don't want you bowing down to anything or anyone else. And so notice what he said in verse number 5. Here is why. He said, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. What did God... Let's listen, please. What did God just declare of himself? He said, I'm jealous. I'm of the jealous type. Well, God, is that because you have insecurities? God, is that because you have trust issues? God, why is it that you're jealous? I'm jealous because you belong to me, and I'm the one who saved you, and I'm the one who delivered you, and I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am God, and because of that, I don't want you putting anything else in front of me I want to be number one in your life. You know what God made very clear to the children of Israel here? He made it very clear. I'm not into open relationships. I'm not here just to be your buddy and your sidekick whenever you need someone to spend time with. I'm not here just to kind of be that go-to individual whenever you're in a bind. I'm not here for that and that alone. No, I want to be first and foremost in your life above anything else, above everything else. I want to be number one in your life. Because, see, I'm the jealous type, God says. Now, generally, we think of jealousy. We think of, uh, of that in all of its connotations, and we think of it in a negative context. We think of that in a negative light. But think about it, please. It would be inappropriate for God to have the relationship that he had with Israel and not expect fidelity and faithfulness to him. Would we agree? So he just comes right out and says it to the children of Israel. Who am I? I am jealous. I am jealous of this relationship that I have with you. So I don't want you flirting with the world. I don't want you going to the things of this world when things get rough and things get difficult and things get hard. I don't want you to go back to the things of this world. I want you to stay faithful to me and to me only. What did God want? He wanted faithfulness because he is jealous. Now, again, as I've said throughout this study, people may say, well, that's Old Testament. You know, we're not under that anymore. That's not how the the Scripture operates. So let's turn over, if we would, very quickly to the book of Luke. If you turn over to the book of Luke, chapter 14... 
Here's what we see. In verse number 25, Christ is speaking, it says, to a great multitude. We don't know exactly what the number would have been. We don't know what all that would have represented by way of size and, and, and numbers. But it says in verse number 25, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. If a person comes to me and they don't hate their father, their mother, their wife, their children, their brethren, their sisters, and even their own lives, you know what they can't be? They can't really be my disciple. Now, was Christ suggesting that in order to be a disciple of his, you have to hate people? Well, of course not. That would not be in line with the rest of Scripture. That would not be uh, uh, one that would match well with parallel verses. All right, Because the Scripture teaches of our responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves. Right? Okay. So we can't sit here this e or this morning and, and we can't stand here this morning and say, okay, now if you don't hate people, then you can't be a disciple of Christ. But I think most of us understand the idea or the intent of the statement, and that is this, is that if you're not willing to love me more than these, then you're not really worthy to be considered my disciple or my student or my pupil. Where would such a statement come from? Well, it would come from this thought and it would come from this idea that even in the days of Christ, whenever people began following Christ, not everyone was happy with the decisions that others were making. You realize this, right? That whenever Christ got followers, there were people who didn't like it, and there were people who resented it, and there were people who wanted to stand in the way of it. And what Christ was saying is this, is it could be your mother, it could be your father, it could be your brother, it could be your sister, it could be your spouse, it could be your children, it could be any number of people who would try to get between me and you and our relationship. And here's what Christ said, is that if you are not willing to love me so much that you would hate them or that you would put them after me, then you are not willing or you are not worthy to be my disciple. Now, I know that the exact words are not spoken as they were in Exodus chapter 20, but do you understand the sentiment here? You understand the thoughts and the ideas that Christ is trying to communicate? He is saying this, I want to be number one. I expect to be number one. And so if your mother tries to get in between me and you, then you have to put your mother aside. If your father tries to get between me and you, then you have to put your father aside. If your children would step up and say, listen, Dad, listen, Mom, you're taking this Christianity thing and following Christ way too serious. You need to scoot them aside and you need to follow me. Why would Christ tell his disciples that in, earth, in order to be worthy to be his disciple that they had to hate everyone else? It was based in this jealousy 
that could not be denied. That didn't even need to be disguised. Christ knew he had come to save them. How would he save them? Through death on the cross. Christ knew what he was going to endure. Christ knew what it was going to cost him. And based on that, if I'm doing this for you, this is what I should expect. And this is appropriate. It's not asking too much. I want to be first. Why? Because of an unchanging God, he is jealous. And he does not want there to be a divided loyalty and a divided affection and a divided heart. In the Old Testament and in the New, what did God want? He wanted faithfulness. Pure, simple faithfulness to God. So this morning, I want to ask us to consider a few things. Things that I know I've brought to our attention before, things that are not new to us, but I think it's appropriate that we think about it for just a moment. I want you to think about your spiritual condition right now before God. And I want to ask you this question, and I'm sure most of you understand the terms that I'm about to use. If not, and you have questions, feel free to ask me about it afterwards. But I, I want to ask you this morning, how many of us would claim to have a testimony of salvation? And by that I mean this, we recognize that there was a point in our life that we realized, you know, I am a sinner and my sin stands between me and God and I am what the Scripture would refer to as lost. I am unsaved. I am unclean before God. And we realize that as a result of being unsaved, we needed salvation. We needed deliverance from our sin so we called upon Christ to save us, and this morning we can say, I am saved. I wonder how many of us this morning would say, I know that I'm saved. Now, again, I don't want a, a response, but just ask yourself, do you have a testimony of salvation? Now, if you do, think about this. Your salvation is the result and the product of what God did in your life through Christ. You realize this, don't you? That if you have a true testimony of salvation, your salvation has nothing to do with anything you did. My salvation has nothing to do with anything I have done. The only way that I got saved is because God was willing to save me through the work of Jesus Christ when I realized I was a sinner and I called upon Christ to save me. That's how I got saved. That's how you got saved. If one day you decided, okay, I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to start working really hard and I'm going to be a good person, just know you'll never work yourself into, uh, into salvation and into heaven because we're just not capable of doing that. All right. Now, as a result of our salvation being all the work of God through Christ in our lives, we now have this relationship with him that quite honestly, 
for lack of better words, he's in control of the relationship. At least that's how it's supposed to be. We don't have to get excited about this, but as a result of our salvation, he saved us, he brought us into this relationship, he delivered us from our sin, from the penalty of sin. We don't have to worry about hell anymore, that's nothing that we have to concern ourselves with. And so as a result of being brought into this relationship with God, he is now the one who is supposed to be in charge of our relationship. So what does he want? Well, he wants to be number one in our lives. He wants there to be no other God before him. He wants it to be that no matter what may stand between us and him, that we would be willing to push it to the side so as to maintain a right relationship with him because we need to be reminded that we have a jealous God that we serve. And somebody says, that sounds terrible, that sounds awful. We'll take it up with God. He is the one who declared that of himself. We need to remember that God is a jealous God and he expects faithfulness from us just like a husband or a wife would naturally expect faithfulness from their spouse, their partner. See, we need to be reminded who God is, that He is a jealous God. I saved you. I delivered you. I brought you out of this life of sin. I have given you the the confidence of eternal salvation in heaven forever with me. And because of that, I simply want you to live for me completely and totally throughout the days of your life, not letting anything stand between me and you. It's what God wants. It's what God deserves. And yet how many times do we as Christians struggle with this? This comes up and we've got to make a decision. This comes up and we have to make a choice. This comes up and we're now torn if, if we're going to do what God would have us to do or if we're going to do what family would have us to do. We're torn. Are we going to do what God would have us to do or, or what the employer would have us to do? You understand the challenges that lie before us, right? I thought we would, but nonetheless, we understand the challenges, don't we? And how many times do we fail? Many of us fail quite often. We fail to remember how God feels about this relationship. God's not okay with me being faithful to Him whenever it's convenient. But whenever it gets hard, whenever it gets challenging, whenever it's not as fun as it once was to begin straying and to begin wandering off and, and to begin flirting with the things of this world. God's not okay with, with us having this mentality of, I'm going to go have fun and I'll come back to the Lord later. No, that, that's not what God's okay with. Why? Because God is a jealous God. I'm thankful that he's a restorer. I, I mean that. I'm thankful that he is a restorer of broken relationships. But we need to be reminded. He takes this relationship very serious. Amen. And it wouldn't hurt for us sometimes 
to ask ourselves if we're taking the relationship as serious as he is. Because if we're honest, again, not all of us probably, but but at least some of us, if we're honest, here's what some of us would have to admit. We're not as faithful to the Lord as we ought to be. We've kind of strayed over here, we've kind of gone over here, and we've kind of done this, and we engage in this, and this is able to pull us away, and this takes us away. We need to be reminded of who He is and how serious He takes this relationship. And we need to ask ourselves, do I take the relationship as serious as I ought to? You may, and if you do, that's fantastic, and I applaud you for that. But I think some of us in here this morning, if we were honest, we'd have to say, you know, I've not been as faithful to him as I ought to be. I've let certain things get between me and my relationship with him. And I've just assumed he was okay with it. I've just kind of adopted the mindset that he must be fine with this. Let me just remind you, he's not. He's not okay with it. He's not happy about it. He's not pleased with it. Because this unchanging God has always been and will always be jealous of his relationship with us. We need to be reminded of that in hopes that it can help motivate us to take the relationship with him as serious as we ought. Let's all stand this morning and bow our heads for prayer. Father, as I come to you this morning, I don't know the hearts of any person in here. God, only you know where we stand in our relationship with you. You know to what extent we're striving to be faithful, to what extent we're striving to to cling unto you and to know others. But God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning individually. Lord, that if there's some area in our life where we're flirting with the things of this world, if we're already beginning to have this relationship with with something other than you and and you're now being put to to the back burner, so to speak, I pray that you'd help us today to realize that you're not okay with it, that you're jealous of it, that it bothers you, that it upsets you, and it needs to be addressed. Lord, however you would see fit to work, I I would be thrilled to, to know that you have. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.